Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Spore is over. It's time to unleash your animals. No, chyba zwierzęta, prawda? Okay, Andy, spore, or, as they say in Polish, pokot. Isn't it funny having a movie with a title that, in English, sounds like it's for... <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I, I suppose I knew what spore was. I yeah. had, you know, when I was a kid, my dad took me on some hunting trips. Um, but it's not a word that I use in conversation very often, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is spore relating to hunting, please? Well, it's the, it's the leavings behind that animals leave so that, you know, if you're hunting or poop Poop. or footprints or any of that sort of stuff, right? As you can tell by my question, I am not any sort of hunter tracker. It's also like the the smell, which I think we get in this film, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the uh, the leaving behinds of the Beatles that 
Yeah, you know, pheromones. Stuff like that. So I think that's kind of what it is. Spore was intended to be. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's different as a meaning from the pokot title in Polish. Which means what? That is more of a term, uh, a hunter's term uh, for the count of how many kills you had that day. Oh. Which specifically comes up in the film at the end when mm-hmm. they're looking at the kind of the flashback of the photo and you see them with all their kills talking about how many kills they had and included in that number are, are her two dogs. Okay. Uh, that was, um, we should talk about that later. Um, so, and the book title, because it's totally different. Yeah, also. the book title is totally different than everything else. The book title is uh, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, uh, which comes from um, some William Blake poetry, mm-hmm. which was a, a central part of her, our protagonist's effort um, in the movie. Her pastime is translating William Blake into Polish. So that's where it comes from. Here, here's the thing about this movie. It's the third of our little mini-series here on the works of director uh, Agnieszka Holland. This one is uh, directed by her and co-directed by her and her daughter. Right, Kasia uh, Adamik. Yes, which is which is uh, great. Good for them. What a strange little family project, this movie. Um, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I had a I had a tough time in the middle of this movie. I, I feel like this is one of those films that um, I I deeply enjoyed until I didn't. And then I took a break and found I was a bit addicted to it. Um, I, I was addicted to how it unraveled at the end. But that middle block, we get a middle block that's all about the killing of the animals. And it was tough to watch. I guess I go back to that, um, you know, D. Wallace, who once said about us, you guys are a bunch of wussies. And <laughs> yeah. I kind of felt like that at this movie. I feel like I have adjusted to a lot of different kinds of horror, but watching the wildlife getting themselves shot. Didn't care yeah. for that. Well, it is good to know that no animals were actually killed during the making of this film. All of that was um, pre-existing footage that they had filmed of animals combined with CG work to actually make all of those kills look like they were actual kills. That is, do you know, that is a project that I think if you're a visual effects artist, that is the project you want to be on. Because you get an assignment that says, we want you to make cutting edge effects of an animal getting shot from a distance in the woods. And then we want you to degrade it and make it look crappy. That's your job. That is such a job. That's a job you can do while watching, you know, real housewives. You don't even have to put all your brain to it. What a, it's a cakewalk. Beautiful. It, well, you know, it's, it's funny because it's it's. To a certain extent, it's the exact same thing that they do with people all mm-hmm. the time, right? In war scenes uh, yep. or um, disasters, whatever it is. It's just one of those things. They've gotten really good at creating um, living beings and then basically making them look like they are dying on screen. Yeah, And uh, it's, just, it's, it's a strange part of the art form. It, it is a strange part of the art form, for sure. Um, but uh, that all underlies the big question how did you end up liking the movie after you watch it because you hadn't seen this before right this was your first i had not correct this was my first viewing of this film it's a little tricky to get here in the states it's it's a film that um 
you know, it's harder to track down because it just never got a, any sort of distribution here. It it did it is actually streaming in uh, probably about five different countries around the world, and then it has other distribution in other forms, yeah, probably in another dozen or so beyond that. It's, so it's definitely accessible. It's just not as readily accessible, especially here in the states. I uh, so every now and again did, we like to just say, you know what? If you're in the states, just go pound tough. sand. Go see this. <laughs> this right. one's this one's for you, rest of the world. That's right. <laughs> That's right. The um, so I I uh, went into this knowing it was probably not the sort of film that would find easy U.S. distribution, and so I think that helped me in my approach of the film. Because it's definitely a different type of movie. It's not basically a straight-up crime thriller, which is kind of what it's it's pegged as, right? It's kind of this this older woman um, who is an animal lover, kind of trying to figure out that you know, why these different people are dying. All all hunters of one form or another, and she starts saying that the animals are doing it, and it's uh, it's an interesting exploration. I ended up kind of liking it. Um, it's not uh, my favorite of Holland's films that we have discussed, but I found it to be a really interesting story in the way that it wasn't just a straightforward telling of a story. Because I think if you look at it as a pretty straightforward crime thriller, it is a little lacking. What I think Holland brings to it is something that isn't that kind of straightforward type of storytelling. There's this mystical element that you end up finding in the way that our protagonist is. I mean, right out of the gate, she's giving us astrological readings pretty much, you know? And that's definitely an element of the story as we get to know this really interesting woman um, who... uh, you know, I find to be a really fascinating character. I was mesmerized by Dujeko. I found her just spellbiting. Well, I, I can't wait to talk more about her performance by Agnieszka Mandat. But I think the film itself, it was the addition of kind of this mystical element that kind of was brought in because of the way that she saw the universe and also the way that the film builds to its final moments, which I, is something else that's very interesting to talk about. So there's a lot more going on here than a, just a straight-up crime thriller. And so I I think that there it's never going to be a successful film, I think, if you're just looking at it as a straight-up crime thriller. But I think if you kind of see it in, with some other aspects, you can find more to it. Would you classify it then as an activist film? That's an interesting perspective. I think that there could be some element of that. I think that there are a lot of artists and filmmakers who view themselves as activists. And so I don't put it past Holland, to who, who certainly seems like the sort of person who likes to push buttons, likes to kind of look at difficult subjects and approach them with uh, with perspectives that aren't necessarily the norm. I think that that element can make it seem like she's a bit of an activist and that this is a bit of an activist film. I mean, the reviews certainly seemed to kind of come out that way. I think that some of the media outlets in Poland said that Holland had made a pagan film promoting eco-terrorism, which <laughs> Holland just delighted to and wanted that on the poster because she thought it would attract more audiences. Well, and, and that doesn't I, surprise th- me a single bit because she, I mean, I yeah. 
I get the feeling after watching her being interviewed over the last three weeks and and seeing her experience as a filmmaker, it very much feels like she chose this project because she is the protagonist uh, and and how yeah. well she cast Agneste Mandat as as uh, Jusheko is it, because it feels like she has a perspective on things and she is a, uh, a zealot in making that perspective known. Yeah, Holland said uh, this was at the New York Film Festival. She described the film as an anar- anarchistic feminist ecological crime story with elements of black comedy and magic realism. It feels like <laughs> a lot that was shoehorned into this movie for being such a largely uh, sort of silent <laughs> kind of meditation on li- wildlife and landscape. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a lot. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. I so yeah. it's not a perfect film, but I I really like that she was doing something different with it and trying to kind of push it into different directions. At the end, I think that there are some elements that if you're if you're buying into it, it probably will work fine for you. If you're not buying into it already, by the time that you have uh, the police character who is her buddy who. Uh, uh, pulls open his laptop and pushes the magic button that that creates like basically an an EMP and yeah. kills the power everywhere so they can escape you're not going to you're not really into the movie and i i totally would understand <laughs> yeah yeah and and uh, i'll tell you uh, apart from that middle section where I just had a sour stomach at watching some of it and and kind of it was already late at night and I took a break. I went to bed and I came back the next morning and I found myself really into it. And I really loved the end of the film. I loved the way things unraveled. I loved the way they turn it on us because I I was one of those who did not know that she was the one right i didn't i didn't get it i wasn't i i didn't believe it i thought that they would figure something else out and um and honestly i expect it to be kind of an ari aster oh look it is magical animals and it's horrible uh <laughs> and we didn't get that we got this you know it was a true story it was this is how it played out and from what i understand largely it's the experience of the book and that's when the the whole magical realism of the EMP in this town, which is not great with technology, right? They barely mm-hmm. have cell service anywhere, uh, and suddenly they they are able to to make that happen. That's where the stars fell. I didn't I didn't buy it, even though the rest of the end, the ultimate resolution, and I think some of the the beauty of the the artistry of the camera work at the end of the film, I think was just perfect uh it, it, those were perfect sequences it just i didn't i wasn't with that well i guess it's worth talking about then uh, we may as well just talk about it now because my question was when that happens are we and, and because we go to this basically it's a fantasy ending right yeah her dogs are alive they're they're all having this idyllic dinner with everyone there plus a new child and everything just seems so perfect beyond belief and then she goes outside she's you know running through the fields with her two dogs who are alive now the, that we had seen had been killed earlier in the film and then they kind of fade out of the screen and leaving just the landscape that really made me feel that yeah you know what maybe we're seeing a wish fulfillment of an ending and everything at the emp point and beyond is really kind of how she's 
wanting everything to go. We have some really interesting flashbacks throughout the film that we see in, in kind of like very very colorful you know the images are are the colors just pop when we go to these flashbacks whether it's her flashback or other people's and i feel like they're not necessarily flashbacks i feel like they are her vision of what she's seeing as far as in that person's past or in her own past it's kind of the way that she's seeing the world Mm -hmm. and i can't help but feel like the ending is another one of those where now all of a sudden we are kind of witnessing kind of her her view her hope of how everything is going to go at the end of the film and at that point when they're stopped at the police we never get to actually see what the resolution of the film is maybe they're arrested right there maybe that's the end of the film but in her mind it's not that. In her mind, they escape and have a happy existence outside of that. That's interesting. And it plays into the fact that we don't actually know what happened to Yanina um, because she she evaded capture. And that's as far as the book ends, is, is my understanding, that we don't know what happens to Dushenko. And so it would absolutely fit the the narrative that we move into fantasy land and um and and let us sort of resolve out of that. I actually don't mind that and I don't mind the way she fades out. I think it's an incredibly artful way to communicate this sort of uncertainty in her experience and I liked it. I really did. What I didn't like and what I think was not sold well was the fact that her police officer friend Dizzy actually has some sort of power over the city that I just <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't didn't anticipate and I didn't buy. And I think we could have gotten away with everything had we not taken what I see as a shortcut, using technology as a shortcut to get around a tricky plot hole. And yeah. uh, I, I don't like that. I feel like that was everything, all the other flashbacks, all the other experiences that she's been having. Um, I, I think all of that is earned in the film. And, and uh, I... I I came away really satisfied with how she portrayed this character, how the character was treated, and then let down when they introduced what I I know you will delight when I compare it to a big fish kind of a an ending. Big Fish, one of my favorite <laughs> movies. Uh, it is one of those experiences where you just you're, you're kind of in and out of of these fantasy stories, and um, and you know this is not that movie. Big Fish has already done that movie, right? Munchausen already did that. This is, I didn't need the sort of uh, that sort of superpower. I didn't buy it. Uh, that that element. I mean, they could have ended exactly the same way and yeah. just had them stop at the police. We don't see that whole thing, and and we just kind of assume they got away, or we just see the police let them by because they didn't hear the word or whatever it could have been. It didn't have to be that, you know. Yeah. It's, it is it is flippant, right? It is. I think that that just that little piece is uncharacteristically flippant for a movie that tends to be that has tended to be over the last two hours completely, you know, sort of sober. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's completely sober. It's pretty. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely elements of, of craziness in the film. There's there is the black comedy. There is kind of strange happenings. But I do I do largely agree with you, though. I think the point is. That element, the fact that he's got this strange technological button that can wipe everything out yeah. uh, power-wise so they can drive away and get away scot-free, mm-hmm. d- that, that really doesn't make any sense. The last 
couple of hours of the film, we actually get, I think, a really smart uh, discussion, uh, sort of narrative discussion on these various cultural collisions as told through this story. And, the, you know, not the least of which is sort of young versus old, right? This old woman who is uh, older woman who is essentially kind of put out to pasture, sort of. I mean, she is volunteering as an English teacher. All the kids love her, but she's the kooky old lady who comes in to teach English. Uh, we get a dose of uh, religious conflict, religious versus spiritual versus atheist. We get conservatives versus liberal. We get liberty versus authority, uh, uh, man versus nature, for crying out loud. The whole film is man versus nature. Um, it, these these sort of the, the vectors of approach of these conflicts that are portrayed in this movie, I think incredibly elegantly uh, uh, make it for a very satisfying watch. And again, uh, so my use of the word sober might not be <laughs> not be on the money, but but I do <laughs> think it is it it makes for a um, at, at least an attempt at uh, addressing the complexity of what happens when communities are thrown into uncertainty like this. Probably uh, politically at the time um, in Poland, I feel like Holland probably knew that this would be pushing some buttons with the way that the country was going. And it just, I mean, the way the world was really going mm -hmm. by that point, right? And I think that it really makes a lot of sense the way that she uses this as an opportunity to really push those buttons and really kind of look at these different things. It's not always smooth. Sometimes I feel like it's a little on the nose, like some of the elements with the priest who is just so kind of the stereotypical, like hard-nosed priest who, you know, believed staunchly that that man was man and animals were meant to be subservient and all that. You know, it, I think some of the character caricatures of these characters was a little strong little as broad. far as the way that they, yeah, the way that they were played. But, but, but you'll I notice, still, Andy, all of the broad portrayals, they sure got theirs in the end. <laughs> yes, they did. They sure <laughs> did. Well, and that's, that's an element that I think is, uh, is also worth kind of talking about just the way that what we're portraying here and all of this discussion, the, all these points you were just talking about, religious versus atheist, conservative versus liberal, uh, man versus nature, how does all of that fit in when you're doing this sort of crime story and when you're using it, having a director like Agnieszka Holland come in and tell the story with those points? And I think that's what she was really liking about the opportunity with this story but I, I do think that it's something that does make for a more challenging film to to get distribution. And as we already pointed out, it, it couldn't even get distribution here in the U.S. Was it just with all of these points, does it feel like too European, too much of that kind of foreign movie that that, you know, just kind of the, the U.S. barriers just doesn't allow it to kind of get through and have conversation about? I don't think so. And I think if you put David Fincher's name at the top of a movie like this, it blows up as a global phenomenon. It's another mm. or or, you know, it's another gone girl, right? It's not like we don't have movies that have taken on complex sort of uh, uh, sociocultural issues like this in a, in a horror context. Well, I mean, you're looking at a 60 some year old woman as the protagonist yep. who also is a little insane and an astrologist and killing people. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's too European? Uh, it just it's it's it just strikes as a film that might be hard, like to for for U.S. audiences to really find they click with. 
<laughs> Especially when it ends with such a, a mystical way. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're right. That's that's what does it end. <laughs> that's that EMP, damn it's it. the EMP. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I think so. I think it's a challenge, but I do think that it's not for lack of trying. And I think the cast... Uh, I think this story in the hands of Agnieszka Mandat and again to uh, Viktor Zborowski uh, as um, Swiatopek, uh, they are really good. They are so easy to watch and they do hard things in this movie uh, with absolute aplomb. They have their conversation smoking weed on the fire. Uh, is is one of those transformational moments in the film. And it's exceptionally difficult uh, to watch them, you know, discuss his his history, his family history, and laugh about it and watch his the subtlety of his turn uh, as he starts talking about the truth. He is just an amazing mm. uh, performer, and she is an incredible foil. And there is a lot of weight uh, on their shoulders to keep this movie moving forward and, and maintain interest. Well, that's what I loved about this film. I mean, there it's and, you know, I, I said all that stuff earlier uh, about, you know, being too European. I mean, it's obviously a little cheeky because I do enjoy this film. I think that there are some really interesting elements in this film to enjoy. And this is what you're talking about is absolutely one of them. The way that this story unfolds with uh, Dusheko and and Bigfoot, and then you get Boris who comes in, and you have this strange little kind of love triangle that we have going on with these uh, older people, I found to be just really fascinating. And the way that she kind of gravitates to to Boris, um, but you have this like kind of this broken heart uh, with Bigfoot um, uh, as he's really drawn to her, but sees that she's being pulled by this other guy. I just, I, I just found these these people to be so interesting. And anytime they were having these slower moments with these conversations, I'm like, this is why Holland directs films like this, because you have chances to really, you know, have some interesting character moments with, with these people that you wouldn't necessarily get if somebody else was trying to tell a story like this. And you're right. The story that, that, uh, uh, Sweet as we, uh, kind of, you know, she's like, well, that's an, that's quite a name. Uh, with his name, that's why I think she calls him Bigfoot. The way that he tells that story, it's just, it is really kind of just heartbreaking. The way that he's kind of spun this fiction about his life and how tragic it really is. I mean, it's it allows for a lot of moments. And you can tell that people in this part of the world are still really dealing with a lot of the grief and suffering that they had uh, gone through with kind of the period when we talked about in the past two films with Holland, with In Darkness and Europa Europa. I mean, there was just so much terror and horror that people suffered through with the uh, the Holocaust and World War II. Looking at, at it through these eyes at a much later point in life, as you're seeing it told in this crime thriller story that also has these other interesting elements, uh, I, I found it to be really fascinating. Yeah, I did too. I, I think they they did a fantastic job of communicating sort of the heart, and and it made me think that you know one of the things that you pointed out last week was that um, Agnieszka had spent uh, so long, longer than the Holocaust itself, uh, making movies about the Holocaust that she was done. But you know, watching this movie, I realized that maybe she's not done 
right? Maybe she's not done yeah. it just sort of, you know, existing in the emotional space, if not the literal sort of historical space of of communicating just sort of the narrative of that time in history and, and the long, there's sort of the ripples in the pond that continue to impact uh, generationally. And I, I thought that was just beautifully handled in this movie. I think it was, I think it was great. So whatever shortcomings I end up having about sort of the, the big fishification of the movie, <laughs> the fantastical elements. I think the non-fantastical elements were handled very well. I I think in particular the the setups that that she you know the the way uh, Holland manages to to demonstrate the mechanics of the things that uh, Dushenko was keeping right the parts of animals and and then later how she used them as as footprints to kind of create this image that uh it it wasn't actually a person who murdered all these people it was the animals exacting their revenge <laughs> and it wouldn't yeah, be the first right. time and she starts going through the litany of of um you know of court cases decided in favor of animals being you know the murder yeah, right. uh it it's just sort of delightful so even as off the deep end as she gets i think they've they've successfully kind of given her a story that's believable to to the end yeah i think so and you know just just another point uh following up on your holocaust point yeah i thought it was a really interesting element for her to bring into this film when you when she meets Boris for the first time and he introduces her to the Kukujus hematodes, yeah. the little red forest beetles that they have there. And he's got the line, the death of the Kukujus hematode larva, it's a holocaust and nobody knows about it. And and I'm like, how interesting that in a non-Holocaust film, she's she is still finding a way to discuss Holocaust, discuss ending a species i just i found that to be really interesting yeah to to kind of continue that it's not just people that that have to be part of the holocaust i i I thought that was an interesting element you know the other thing that i i was sort of musing on and this is kind of a high level thing but but i think the film has a perspective on this which is the the uh what we see in the film about power and authority, right? Who has it in the film? Who wields it in this mountain community? And, and and what is the perspective on like coercive authority versus just sort of, I don't know, the just raw power, like police power. And, and there are some funny scenes that communicate that. Um, her, anytime she goes to the police and is totally disregarded, the way the police kind of operates... <laughs> is, I think, comical. You look at some of the black comedy elements that you were talking about. Their conversations uh, demonstrate, I think, repeatedly that they have no intellectual authority over the town. They have very little coercive authority over the town and even less so persuasive authority over the town. And in fact, the chief was on the take with the guy who runs the horrible, horrible hunting reserve next door to her land and uh i i i found it 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 was one of those moments like we've had last time she does an incredible job setting me up to feel like oh man uh i i hate loving what she's done here i hate feeling an (laughs) affinity toward the the comic parts that i know are just 
awful. Uh, she does smartly blend kind of that comedy with it and gives you some really interesting characters to meet. And just, I, I don't know, I found the characterizations of some of these people like um, um, the, I can't remember his name now, the guy who ran the farm, uh, the little fox farm, um, you know, that guy, and then the mayor. It just like I found them to be really interesting characters. Again, sometimes a little too straightforward, too on the nose. Uh-huh. But but on the whole, what uh, kind of an interesting way to kind of uh, kind of give us these people in this uh, in this strange little community? It was shot again. Um, I you know we talked a little bit about this, but it was shot beautifully um, uh, by uh, Yolanta Diluska, who is a returning character, uh, a cinematographer, uh, and Rafal Paradovsky. Um, and we talked about Yolanta last week with uh, In Darkness, mm-hmm. and right. I, I I found it interesting to look at just the opposites. Right, we get this the the uh, she has to spend you know however long they shot in the sewer, and now she gets to shoot in a field. And uh, I think she did an, an incredible job, uh, sort of balancing those things uh, and throwing drones in the air and giving us some unique perspectives on the landscape that uh, I think were refreshing um, parallels to or a refreshing sort of sequel to her visual experience within darkness. Yeah. And I I mean, both of the cinematographers had worked with Holland before, and I I feel like this was possibly of all the films what uh, the my favorite cinematography of her uh films that we have looked at so far yeah. i mean we've talked about yolanta last week but and, and i really like what yolanta and and uh, Agnieszka did with the darkness in the sewers like yeah. i felt like they really captured just this raw authentic real darkness down there but the way they capture the forests, the way they captured, like there's one particular shot when you see the old man, he's standing out in the darkness, in the trees, snow is coming down, and he's only lit by like the car's headlights. And just the way that the lighting played in that scene was just beautiful. Like throughout, I just kept finding myself mesmerized by images from the film. It just, it was stunning to look at, just really, really effective in capturing really kind of this world of of uh, Dujeko and how she saw nature as this uh, this beautiful beautiful thing that needed to be appreciated it just felt like we were really seeing the world through her eyes well and her eyes and the use of landscape i think was super compelling to me like they she gave us a sense of these woods that uh was unique right it was a new experience for me i we don't we don't get to spend a lot of time in uh you know polish mountain woods uh and and they felt different and i think they were captured incredibly well these big wide shots these these shots that felt sort of impossibly tall for being portrayed i mean what i was looking at was just a you know 16 by 9 distribution of it uh but it the the way she captured sort of the height of these trees that seem to just go up and keep going up like they're legs of a giant spider right they're just nothing on them uh and these little tiny kids like walking this little class kind of traipsing through the woods i thought that was incredibly effective uh use of frame and um, and and just beautiful additions to the film all around not to mention the fact that we see it over so many different seasons yeah. and we get to get a real sense of these woods in 
spring, in winter, in summer, and it always feels a little different. What did you think of those little chapter breaks, too? I, I loved the chapter breaks, the way that they were defined by the hunting seasons. Yeah. <laughs> like, that Ooh. was really genius to kind of give us that truly. sense. And gross. Yeah. Genius and gross. Yes, truly. And the writing credits uh, uh, go to, uh, actually, the novelist, uh, Olga Tokarczuk and Agnieszka Holland, who, uh, I, I guess, worked together on the adaptation. Yeah, I believe they did. Uh-huh. And I think they, I think they did a lovely job. I have not finished the book well, yet, so you've read some of it, though. Yeah. So at least you can you can get a sense of you know how it was adapted to make this, and and you feel that they did a pretty fair job of taking it and adapting it. Yes, and I will say a caution. I'm caution, cautiously optimistic that this opinion holds true throughout. That uh, I feel like the the adaptation I think works. Uh, it tells a story. I think the the book itself is actually um, it, it is more. Um, beatnik, I think, than than mm. the experience of the movie. Uh, it it actually really kind of it leans more heavily into that side of Dusheko, uh that that I think we don't we don't see quite so quite as much in the movie. So, um, gotcha. I, I really like that part of the character. So it was fun. It was like you know, yeah, it's that's my kid's grandma. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Also, I hope she's not a sociopath, uh, uh, murdering hunters, but. It is what it is. Uh, so I and and to that point, you know, I did have this little this little twinge at the end. You know, all these hunters end up dead, and yet at the same time, like any time where you're presented with this, where these hunters are doing horrible things horribly, and they're demonstrated as horrible people, because not all hunters are horrible people. Let me just say that. I'm no, yeah, right. right. Uh, that these hunters are presented as if they are horrible people or stupid people. Right. They're they're either those two. And that's the perspective of the film. And well, and men, white men, uh, totally white men, particular uh, part of the world at this particular time. Yeah. So I think all of that rolls. Yes. Very uncomplicated set of cultural sort of rules that define who these targets are. (laughs) Um, And and as I'm watching that, uh, given what uh, all of these guys did. At any point, did you find yourself thinking maybe these guys didn't suffer enough? <laughs> Is that gross? <laughs> like maybe did you want them to have to squeeze into those fox cages and be beaten on a little bit, just a little bit? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, like I said earlier, my dad when I was a kid took me on some hunting trips, and they were always very hard for me. I was never clearly not born to be a hunter I did if not i was know that born your dad was a hunter thousands he's not anymore it's just one of those things that i think that he did because friends did and it like i mean i remember once he took me out took me and my sister out to hunt rabbits and like i just felt horrified by what he was doing and then you know we would have to go out after he shot them and grab them carry them back to the car I was horrified by the fact that when I did that, like all the fleas from the rabbit started jumping onto me because I was warmer than the rabbit at that point, and it just freaked me out. Um, and then when I was older, it took me on a, a hunting trip to hunt deer, and that was, you know, you're riding in a little four-wheeler through the woods with a dead deer next to you. It's just like these moments in my head burned there permanently because of these <laughs> trips. I'm like, I just, I am not that person who could go yeah. out do that. And I mean, I know a guy here in town. I've worked with him a number of times. He's, you know, very hardcore hunter. And 
like the way that he views it, I can appreciate because he is going out to hunt for food that uh-huh. is something that will sustain him. And it's better, it's, it's not full of all the chemicals that they pump into the animals that you buy at the grocery store. And it's it's much healthier for you, et cetera, et cetera. And there's an element to the hunt and everything. And, and so yes. I feel like, you know, he's doing it in a way where I can appreciate because at least he's doing it because it's sustenance and he's... I, I mean, I don't think he's doing it quite to the extent where he, every part is something that he ends up using in one way or another. But still, I, I can appreciate that he is actually doing like what I call like authentic hunting. It's not just like big game hunting yeah. just to have heads right. on his wall or anything. Right, right. He's trying to use yeah. every part of the buffalo. I, I do find hunting to be something that there it, it's such a a difficult thing to talk about because I get really frustrated with big game hunting. But at the same time, like I've heard, like there was this great podcast that walked through it all and I'm totally going off on a tangent now, but it it talked about the realities of it and, and the two sides of what it, why it happens and why you do that. And I was like, you know, I can totally see that other side. I don't like that. I can see that other side, but I think that there is some logic to it. It's just horrible, uh, you know? And so it's just, it's one of these things. I just, I am not part of that world. And I find the way she portrays the people here as the hunters, very just their, their archetypes, just straight up, straightforward cardboard cutouts of the type of people we don't like. And the fact that they hunt makes us like them even less. Yes, and I I absolutely agree with everything you just said. And the fact that I have a sour stomach watching it or thinking about hunting only means I'm not a hunter. (laughs) I totally get like I get why it is it is, uh, you know, it's it's a recreational part of the lifestyle. I get it for others. It's not me. And but the movie, the the Agnieszka Holland cinematic universe presents us with hunters that are horrible people and that's all we get <laughs> you know yeah uh, we don't have uh the gentle conscientious uh sort of um you know way of the mongoose sort of uh hunter yeah. here what, what we get are the horrible drunk uh grandstanding white people in power using that power to influence and gain more power and then kill things Right. You do it in a way where they can do it where they're not supposed to, yep. when, when they're, they're not, not supposed, supposed to. to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all of that, all of that. And killing things they shouldn't even be killing, like her dogs. Yeah, that was that yeah. was awful. Now, I would say on that, on the, the, the just visual presentation of the reveal, that transition to the photo from photo to life was uh-huh. super compelling. Yeah. It was great. It was gross and horrible. And uh, I was on the edge of the couch watching as they it moved into the still photograph. And then the hair on the dogs started to move. And then and the people could, yeah. started to kind of move around. I thought that was beautifully, artfully constructed. It was done uh, really well. I, I will say that I knew exactly what she found when she was looking at that. I mean, it all comes from when they... Yeah go into the dead neighbor's house to because you know, he had died and she finds that and i i felt that that was an obvious giveaway when she sees it and then we never see what it is i'm like oh she just found evidence that this guy was involved in in her dogs getting Man, killed i didn't see it 
I thought there was going to be something else, but I didn't. I did not. Uh, I was not along with it. I didn't know it was a photo or whatever, but yeah. I did. I knew she found something like a collar or something. That, that yeah. I, I wonder if that would be, have been a different experience for you on the big reveal, the big fishification of the end, if you didn't know that or if you, you didn't know that it was a thing. I don't know. I actually think um, we feel kind of the same way about it. So I don't know why that would change. Anything. Yeah, I, I don't think it would change. anything. I, I am the example the of what itself. that's like. Yeah. So. Um, Cassio, her her co-director, Cassia Otomic, her daughter, we um, did mention. It's just worth noting that um, that it was kind of a very collaborative director on this. Um, she is a director in her own right who has done a number of different projects, a lot of TV, as I kind of look at the work that she's done, um, lots of different TV projects, uh, Absentia, The Border, 1983, uh, just tons of different TV say work. It. And Say it. You know there's one you have to say. She didn't direct there, it, but she was in the art uh, department. Oh, Battlefield Earth. Battlefield Earth, Battlefield, Andy. Yes. That's right. Yes. <laughs> it's one of her known fours. How do you That's not right. say that? I know. I know. I, I had skipped <laughs> past that. I had forgotten that I saw that, but yes. Yes, she worked in the art department on Battlefield Earth. Uh, don't know. Uh, she was a storyboard artist. Yeah. Uh, she did a lot of storyboard artists. So working with her mom all the way from the mid-90s on Total Eclipse. Uh, she worked with uh, Baz Luhrmann on his Romeo and Ju- Juliet, a uh, lot of other different things through uh, all the way in, in darkness. She was actually still doing storyboards with her mom on that film. So. I really loved the score to this film. I thought uh, Antony Lazarkowitz uh, mm-hmm. did just a beautiful beautiful score for this film that had uh, just a nice feel throughout. I, I thought it worked really effectively uh, all through the film. Yeah, it was it, it was nicely paired with the certainly the community. You know, it felt very much like it was a score that uh, that people who lived here would be listening to. Yeah. You know, like insofar as it felt fit what was going on on the screen, I felt very much at home with the, the score. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it's off of, um, you know, in darkness, too. Uh, we've talked about it in darkness. And it was just sort of a very different uh, approach to to what we got within darkness, which was super environmental and not listenable. It was it, it worked really well for the film, but didn't feel like something you could tune into outside of that. Whereas this one really feels like something you could tune into totally outside of the context of the film. Yep, yep. How to do it award season? It was a uh, it was okay. You know, I, it it received eight wins, fifteen other nominations at the Berlin International Film Festival. It did. Uh, it was nominated for the Golden um, the Berlin Bear which is uh, the best film. It was nominated for that, but lost to the film On Body and Soul, which is an interesting little film that uh, I believe was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film over here in the States. It did win, however, the Alfred Bauer Prize, which is the Silver Berlin Bear. So it uh, didn't win the gold, but it did win silver. At the Polish Film Awards, it was nominated for six awards, but it lost all of them. Most of them to the film Silent Night, which I'm going to have to see now because I'm very curious about. Silent Night um, won Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound um, over Spore. And, uh, you know, our brilliant Agnieszka, uh, uh, Agnieszka Mandat, our lead actress for this, was nominated Best Actress, but she lost to Magdalena Bosarska for The Art of Loving, the story of Michelina Wisloka. So, 
Uh, so, you know, it, it, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, but how about at the box office? I'm assuming that now you've put all of your research struggles behind you <laughs> and you've been able to find all of the budgetary information that you need to make a compelling case for APPFM. You know, the last film of our series, and yet again, I'm left with no budgets for these films of Agnieszka Holland. Ah, say I love you. What are you going to do? This film is an interesting one, though, because I think, Pete, this might be the first film that we've discussed on the show that never, in fact, had any theatrical release in the U.S. outside of film festivals. Well, at least we know where the zero goes. It's yeah, right. It's possible. I, you know, I, I say that now. I'm thinking about, and I'm going to forget the name of the film. Um, it was a listener's choice. It was the um, the one with the woman in the in the big house, the kind of the religious themed film. Viridiana Louise Bunuel. That may be the only film um, that com- comes close because it was banned, and so it was. Yeah. Uh, it was only watched in secret screenings. Secret screenings. Mm-hmm. We should all be so lucky. Holland's crime film did open Poland February 24th, 2017. It did run in film festivals around the world for a year, including six domestic festivals over here. It opened in a few other countries, but it never really found much of an audience. It did earn just over a million at the international box office, which isn't much in today's dollars. I have to imagine it cost more than that, and I have to imagine it it is at a loss. But otherwise, that is all I have. (laughs) Uh, That's, uh, well, Andy, I... (laughs) No, this is a surprising film for me uh, to come out. I, I think I did I did end up uh, liking the film. The question is how far how far did the stars fall? Because uh, I I am I'm I find Holland kind of an entrancing director so far. I do wish we had we we maybe had shaken up the Holocaust movies uh, and done. <laughs> uh, a third film that would give us a little bit more breadth of of her work, but I think that the first two were were different enough Holocaust movies that it's, we we certainly got a, a a picture of the kind of stuff she can do. Um, I I think she's a she's a director who reminds me so much of her of of like I I just have have personified her in this role of Agnieszka Mandat's, you know, uh, character in this movie that now I have a hard time imagining her as anything else. She's a she's a grandmother I would love my kids to have. <laughs> she's got a crazy uh, astrologer fan of the wolves. And uh, um, that's really funny. I, I, I didn't really think about that. But I'm like, you know, there's something to that. The fact that she yeah. she does feel like she's a little bit like her character Dusheko from this film. Like I feel like there is this element within Holland and the way she tells her stories where she doesn't necessarily she's not looking for just straight up telling you a story. She's looking for a way to tell a story that has a little bit more to it whether it's the theme or a message or kind of an artistic push whatever it is. I feel like there is more to her work and I I generally find her very compelling and want to watch more of her stuff because um, I, I just think that she definitely... I, it's it's interesting that two of our recent directors that we've talked about, her and Spike Lee, I both feel have very clear artistic voices, the way that they choose to tell their films and the stories that they choose to tell. And uh, the, I don't know, it excites me when I'm experiencing films like this even if it's not a film that's like straight up five star um i I still just find 
this to be just an incredibly fascinating movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think you said something last week about her, uh, the way she strives to sort of tell the story in a way that's approachable and real and authentic and detailed. Uh, and and I think you get that even when she falls off that particular wagon, as she does in this movie. Uh, I, I think that that um, uh, those are intentional, right? You feel that sort of sense of intention that she's using it for for a, a real approach, right? She has a purpose, and um, I, that's that was my experience of this movie. That that the next day I already had new stuff to think about uh, mm-hmm. than, than that first watch, and that's what you count on. That's what you want. Yeah, right. Definitely. Let's take it to Definitely. that. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. You swipe over in your show notes, you tap the word flickchart. It should take you directly to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Spore or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Spore, please. <laughs> you know, I, I love me some Kevin Costner. I feel like I'm going to say Robin Hood right here. <laughs> Oh, this is this is a rock paper scissors that determines this determines whether we go to the top half or the bottom half of our chart with this movie. All right, let's do it. There's a lot riding this one. Here we go. One, One, two, two, three, scissors. And it looks like Robin Hood takes it. Spore goes to the bottom half. Spore or the Brood? Spore. Really? I was dead set. You would say the Brood. You know what, Andy? I would have normally if the brood had been in the top half of our flick chart. (laughs) But you have ensured that I will pick Spore. (laughs) Well, I will pick the brood here. All right. Here we go. There we go. One. One. Two. two, Three. three. Scissors. 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 Oh, Spore takes it. Spore or the Great Wall. I will take Spore. (laughs) Okay, I, I will also. We take love Jang Yimou, yeah. <laughs> but also then there are the other wall. great Jang Yimou movies. <laughs> That's right. I enjoy the Great Wall. I, it's it's, it's dancing kind of on the side of the wall. The yo yo, the yo yo, yeah. uh, beautiful yo yo. There's a lot nights. to enjoy. There's a lot to roll your eyes at. <laughs> yeah. All right. Spore wins that one. Spore or Kind Hearts and Coronets. Oh, you know what? I'm going to give mm. that one to Kind Hearts. I am too. It's a strong film. Spore or Midnight Run? Oh, I got to go Midnight Run. Yeah, I'd go Midnight Run, too. Spore or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? David Fincher's version. David Fincher. I will say The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Spore or Field of Dreams? Got to go Field of Dreams. I will go with Spore. Baseball, Ray. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here we go. One, two, two, three. three. Rock. Field of Dreams takes. Is what it is. Spore or Once Upon a Time in America? Um, oh, I'm gonna say Spore. Yeah, I'll say Spore too. Spore or the producers. This is the uh, musical retelling yeah, filmed. I'll go with the producers from 25 or 25, 2005. From 2025. Uh, I just cut some zeros out there <laughs> from the year 25. <laughs> You're saying the producers. I, oof, uh, I will too. I'm pretty wherever we where we are one, now but you know Andy, what? what is it even it's okay matter? it's yeah right at this guy it's it's one spot so spore <laughs> landed in spot 279 out of 450 not super high in our chart uh thanks to me <laughs> that's a 38 percent 
little low. That's exceptionally low. We've talked about a lot of great movies on our, I, on our show. I would very much like to hear you rationalize how low it is against your own ranking. Tell me it's higher than that. It's definitely higher. Um, it's still, it's a tricky film. It's a film that I really uh, appreciate. I can enjoy it, but it's not something that I would return to a lot. So it lost more than the other Holland films. I landed in spot 1404 out of 4327, which is a 68%. Yeah, even that's too low. I, I did not have trouble ranking this one. And in fact, I felt uh, at the end, I got to the end and I felt really good about where it exists on my chart. It landed at uh, 201 out of 1447. That's an 86%. Uh, wow. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, and I, if I were to go by the algorithm, I should be at four and a half stars over this movie uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. I'm not going to give it four and a half stars. I'm feeling like this is a four star experience for me. Um, okay. And I don't know how it's going to age, but I will give it a, I will give it a uh, heart. I definitely give it a heart. Maybe, maybe it's a heart that's been, you know, recently shot and is bleeding out. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> bleeding all over the forest, the cold snowy forest floor. <laughs> uh, you know, three point or three and a half for me um, with a heart though. I, I really do enjoy this film. I think there's a lot of beautiful stuff in it. It's a tough story. It's an interesting story. I just, I did find it really mesmerizing and geez, I mean, my, Dot herself deserves an extra half star. Ugh. She's just so stinking good in the film. I really, really just I, I I was like, I had never seen her before, but I was like, I want to see her in more stuff. She was just that good on screen. Totally agree with you. So that means you're a four star then. No, 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 no. no it probably said, would have been a three star an film. extra half star. Yeah. Yeah. Because three star Over three and a half. So, yeah, so if Am I the three, only one who does math around then, here? <laughs> so anyway, three and a half is where I am. Okay. Where do we go from here? This is the end of our series. What is next? I know. At these series, you know, these when we do these short series, that they're 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 we can it's great to whip through them, but man, is it tough because I just want to keep going on about these yes. people. But uh we are going to be doing quite a shift. We're going to be jumping over to a series we've done in the past, movies and their remakes, but we put a twist on it this time. We're looking specifically at uh, French filmmaker Francis Weber and some of the films that he has done and the remakes of those. He's an interesting filmmaker in that he has a lot of movies that he has made over in France that have been remade over here in America, such as The Man with One Red Shoe, Buddy Buddy, uh, the Birdcage, The Toy, Father's Day, Pure Luck, Three Fugitives, Dinner for Schmucks. We are going to be looking at two of those. We're going to look at the original La Caja Fall and then The Birdcage. And then we're going to look at uh, Le Diner de Con and Dinner for Schmucks. So starting with La Caja Fall from 19, uh, what was that, 78? I'm excited about this one. I actually, this is this is one I have seen both of these. I think I've seen all of these movies, uh, I think. Going into this, wow. uh, I definitely the, the La Caja Fall. We actually that's a that was a delightful thing that my French teacher made me watch in when the Birdcage came out. Uh, oh, okay. Which is which was a delightful little pairing. So I feel like I've already done this set. <laughs> I have only seen Dinner for Schmucks of these four films. <gasps> Wait um, a minute. Which wasn't Wait a minute. yeah, which Wait. wasn't my favorite. So I'm curious to kind of dig into more of these. You never saw the Birdcage. No, I had the opposite experience of you. I had a professor who saw it, who is so offended by it that uh, I was like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll skip that one. And I just never bothered with it. I don't even know what to make of this experience. Yeah, I know. I'm so very it'll be, frustrated uh, it'll be a good experience to jump into these movies. I yeah. hope that the, I hope in particular, I hope that one's still good. And it wasn't just me 
Yeah, it wasn't just me with my memory playing tricks because my memory of that movie was very high. Yeah. Oh, crud. I guess we'll find out, won't we? When the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy? Oh, boy. Not today. <laughs> not today. Uh, no. Rough, rough going at Amazon. Not even a barrel to scrape the bottom of. But we were able to head back over to Letterboxd, our dear friends at Letterboxd.com. And it turns out that people from all over the world had things to say about this movie and about how much they didn't like it. Yeah, they just... Uh, it, it was fun looking at the different reviews in different languages to see what people <laughs> really felt. I don't know if this is going to be a new permanent thing that we do, but I'll tell you, I'm pretty excited about it today, is Indeed. adding this extra element, this extra twist to our review segment, where we filter them through Google Translate and see how well the review translates both as a review and as a translation. Indeed. Indeed. Your mileage may Do you want to go first or shall I? No, you go, go ahead. All right. First up... I have a a Turkish review from Letterboxd.com by Kay Koskun, who says, uh, I'm not even going to try reading the Turkish because I don't speak that at all, but it translates to prolonged boredom. Check your phone charge. <laughs> Sometimes. They... I'm assuming that Kay Koskun watched it on his phone or her phone. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I I have one that is from Mordecai, and it is a Portuguese review uh, that I think really uh, really puts it just right when filtered through Google Translate. The scenery and photography are beautiful, but the plot is a mess to the point of being annoying. It is as if they had taken a professional ink and an expensive brush to draw a dick in the classroom wallet. <laughs> Oh, that slays me, Mordecai. You know, I'm going to just like that review just I did. That. I liked it Thanks, hard. Mordecai. Thank you, Mordecai. <laughs> Seal of approval. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No. 
not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman. Can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.